Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to John DeLury, professor of Chinese studies at Yonsei University in Seoul, and the author of the new book, Agents of Subversion, the fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's covert war in China. John, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and congratulations on a really terrific new book. Oh, thanks, Katie. I'm delighted to be talking with you. So the book starts with a secret mission into China in November 1952 with a young CIA officer, the aforementioned John T. Downey, flying into exfiltrate an agent. We will get to that. But what strikes me is that this is also the story of US-China relations during this period. So I wanted to start by asking you about that. And I wonder if you could just give us a, an overview of the broader geopolitical context in which all this is happening and the situation into which John T. Downey is flying that night in 1952. Sure. So if we jump back exactly 70 years. I, three things strike me. First of all, to understand China, it's coming out of a civil war that rages almost immediately really after the end of World War II. China starts to move into a civil war between this fledgling communist movement, but one that's really gaining ground quickly. And then to everyone's surprise actually ends up defeating the dominant nationalist party of Chiang Kai-shek, which has the government and the military. So you've got the Chinese civil war the typical dates we use as historians would be 45 to 49. Although it's quite interesting, if you're back in 1952, the Chinese Civil War is not, and by, by some arguments, it's actually not even over now. It's definitely not over in 1952. The nationalists have decamped to Taiwan and no one knows quite where that's gonna go. So the Chinese Civil War is probably the first thing that I would emphasize in the broad picture because it's China. But the next you go, of course, to the Cold War, right? So. The Cold War, if you want to date it, 1947 is when it's 
the de facto declaration of Cold War by actually Harry Truman by the United States in the famous Truman Doctrine speech. And he says, we're going to fight totalitarianism everywhere. What that really means is we're going to fight the Soviet Union and the spread of communism, not necessarily everywhere, but as many places we can, but actually, especially Europe. I think that's also very important in the current context to understand that the focal point of the Cold War, when it begins, is a battle between, you could say, the United States and Russia over the fate of Europe. That's really important. And so then that leads to the third piece of this geopolitical panorama, which is the Korean War. The Korean War erupts and really blindsides almost everyone except Kim Il-sung, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong, figures that you know well, Katie, through your wonderful book. That was not an expected conflict. Certainly, the America, it's one of the great early intelligence failures for the CIA to, and everyone really, to not see it coming. So the Korean War, that breaks out in the summer of 1950, and now suddenly Korea becomes this central theater for geopolitics, almost ground zero of geopolitical struggle, but that was not as planned. The idea of the Cold War is this is about Europe. So that was a difficult, and the second big surprise is the United States actually went all in in defending South Korea and pushing the North Koreans back north. So I would say those are the three big things we have to have in mind. Still coming out of the Chinese Civil War, global Cold War, which is a US-Russia struggle with Europe as the intended epicenter, and then the Korean War raging in 1952. It's, they're at a stalemate, but militarily, the United States certainly is trying very hard to win this war, and they're not having any luck. So who is John T. Downey, and what is he tasked with in November 1952? So Downey is a young guy. He's barely out of college, and we may come back to that. But he graduated from Yale College and was recruited into the CIA like many of his classmates. And so he goes immediately from commencement of the commencement ceremony to covert action training. And then he's sent out to the Far East, as it would be called then, and gets involved in this pretty crazy operation, covert operation, masterminded by, run by the CIA. So he's a cog in that wheel. He's important, but he didn't come up with this idea and he is not calling the shots. He's following orders. And so he's involved in this project, which is recruiting Chinese agents. There's, a, there's, I guess, a pun in the title. You've got both Chinese and American agents of subversion. But Downey is the American who is recruiting Chinese agents who are then trained by the CIA at the secret facility in, Cy in the Western Pacific and then deployed. And the project, the best I could trace it, it's tough research to really pinpoint all this. And covert history is hard. It's fun, but it's hard to do. But uh, from what I could find, it starts, the inception is 1951, and then it's up and running in 52. And starting the spring of 52, you've got the CIA flying these missions into China, into the People's Republic of China, which, of course, the U.S. government is saying we leave alone as part of the deal of the, co of the Korean War. So covertly violating that public position and s infiltrating these agents to Put it really crudely, they're supposed to overthrow Mao. That's the dream, is that they can overthrow the young communist regime in China. Keep in mind, the communists have only had a state for three years. So Downey is part of that mission. And this is a time when you, the first chapter talks about the loss of China. Can you 
just give us a sense of it. It's extraordinary to hear that phrasing, no, this idea that China was somebody's to be lost. How was this viewed in the United States at the time? I think that's really interesting, Katie, right there. The fact that we almost laugh, but you laugh at the idea now, but it wasn't laughable then. And it wasn't laughable, I think, for a very long time. I think it actually speaks to where we are and how Chinese power has grown and how we as Americans and globally see China, that we find it comical. But at the time to understand that, you have to understand the American mentality for those who paid attention to China. And I don't want to exaggerate the importance of China in the American mind, but it was out there. And when Americans thought of it in this period of time, there was a, you could say, a very patronizing attitude. There's a lot of Christianity involved because there's so many missionaries, American missionaries who had built the relationship with China going back to the 19th century. So there's a sort of religious overlay to the sense of loss. But there was this sense of mission among many Americans. Gordon Chang has written about this marvelously uh, in his book on, on US-China history, that Americans had to somehow take care of China, lead it toward modernity, lead it toward Christianity, lead it toward all these things. And there were high hopes for that all the way through World War II. And it, when the two are military allies, the United States and China are fighting the Japanese together. And so that just all comes crashing down fairly quickly it, during the Chinese Civil War, as I mentioned, those years after World War II. And then the moment, the nail in the coffin of this loss is in 1949, October, when Mao proclaims there's a new, we have a new country, the People's Republic of China. It's communist. And Americans hear that as godless communist, heathen communist. And so that triggers this really toxic debate in the United States over whose fault was it? How did this happen? How did we lose China? How did we let China go communist? And then, and that feeds another big theme of the book, which is McCarthyism, basically, and the second Red Scare and the hunt for someone to blame. And so I feel like this interview is in microcosm of the book where we're jumping backwards and forwards between Downey and the history, Downey and the history. I think you describe him as like the white rabbit who's leading us through this story. Yeah, so well, let- I think you have little kids too, you find these metaphors like Alice in Wonderland. So the white rabbit, I thought, hey, that's what I'm doing here. Yeah, we should warn the reader in case they read the book. It's Downey disappears for a very long time and you explore the big picture. Well, and in real life too. But to take us back to, so now he's a young Yale graduate. He's flying into Northeastern China on, I think, a transport aircraft in November in 1952 to exfiltrate this agent. And what happens? Well, he thinks that he's going, and it's wild to talk about the mission that he thought he was on. He thought he's flying in with three other Americans. You've got the pilot and co-pilot who work for this airline, which has been purchased secretly by the CIA and is a kind of cutout airline called CAT. And then in the back of the plane, there's Downey and, a, and another young guy, Dick Fecto, who worked for the CIA. And so the four of these guys, white Americans don't speak Chinese, you're not going to be able to slip in. If anything happens, they fly in the dead of night and their mission is actually to pick up one of the agents, one of the Chinese agents. Now, they're smart enough to know it's going to be tricky to land a plane and bring them on board and then take off again. The solution is they're going to try out this experimental method of picking someone up off the ground without landing. 
And so that in itself is a wild story of, and it's hard to describe briefly, but there's, uh, you can read the book for the contraption that they have where the guy they're picking up puts on a backpack that's, that's rigged to a harness that's on a kind of football post and the plane comes in low and hooks the wire and pulls him up. It's, it's out of a movie. Now, in fact, they don't get to test if this will work mercifully for the agent because the whole thing is a setup. The, this is a very successful counterintelligence operation by the Chinese. And so the plane is shot down as they come in and the pilot and co-pilot die uh, in whether with the bullet spray or on the, on the impact. And Downey and the other gentlemen survive. They walk out almost unscathed from the wreckage. And now they're prisoners in communist China at the height of the Korean War on a secret mission. What is the situation that they are walking into in China in terms of, you talk about the very successful kind of intelligence operation that has busted them in the first place. But can you talk a little bit about this, the hunt for counter-revolutionaries? I think this is the height of the Hate America campaign. What's going on in China at this time? That's absolutely right. That The Korean War has all these important impacts really globally. <clears throat> but in China, that Mao uses the context of the war to kind of turn the volume back up on the revolution. And, and the specific methods that he uses are these mass campaigns. So they're actually the first really big, you could say, Maoist campaigns after 49 take place with the onset of the Korean War. And the Korean War, it's also important to understand, is framed, I would say, primarily as a fight against American imperialism. And then secondarily, as solidarity with our communist brothers in North Korea. So the Americans are clearly identified as the real enemy. It's not about fighting South Korea. It's about, for example, it's about fighting the United States. And so Mao really uses this to whip up the frenzy of revolution, a new phase of it. And then you've got these campaigns specifically go after counter-revolutionaries, as you said, that term. These are traitors, spies among us. So Chinese who are for whatever reason, untrustworthy, they've got a bad family background, maybe they served in the Nationalist Party in a government or army, because there's a lot of people left over after the Civil War who stick around. And what are you going to do with them? Tens, hundreds of thousands of them are cleaned, either destroyed in a personal career sense or killed in these mass campaigns. So that's the China that these two Americans are flying into and caught red-handed, doing exactly what the government and its propaganda organs are saying. They're the ultimate proof that this really is, that the American government is lying, that it, they are fighting China, and that they're secretly sending these agents in, and these agents have Chinese agents. And so it would have fit the government narrative perfectly and these major political projects of that moment. You have a great quote from Downey. He's, he's put on trial. He's, he's sentenced to prison, I think, effectively for the rest of his life. And he says, it, it was a show trial. On the other hand, I was not an innocent lad who fell into the hands of the robbers. I'd been trying to overthrow their government. I have to confess my own ignorance about this period and about Downey himself. You, you touched on this earlier, but how extensive was this CIA campaign and what were they trying to achieve in China? 
Well, that's tricky because I dug as deep as I could. I got the mud in my fingernails from the digging, both on this specific <clears throat> operation that Downey was a part of, which was targeting what's called Manchuria, Northeast China, as you've been calling it, that region, the provinces kind of bordering North Korea. But there were other operations, covert operations. And so in the book, one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to fairly comprehensively, and a lot of this, of course, is based on secondary source work as opposed to my own, but looking as much at the source as I could to answer that question to show how extensive is this. And what I found is, I don't want to overstate it, but there is stuff going on. If you just go around the borders of the PRC, there, there's a, an operation targeting, poking away. If you look up at Xinjiang, there are efforts there because you have very disgruntled ethnic and religious minority that don't want to be part of this thing or have very mixed feelings. And so you have CIA efforts to link up with that. Those are the hardest. They're hard to reach geographically. There's a better known story with Tibet. And so the feelers are certainly out to see if it's possible to support the Tibetans. That project doesn't really come online until later in the late 50s and through the 60s. You've got this wild story of a lost division or so of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist army who are in Burma and from time to time launch these invasions into Yunnan province in the southwest and the CIA is supporting some of that. And then lastly, you've got Chiang Kai-shek himself. So Taiwan is a hotbed. There's a massive CIA presence. And again, they're probing, they're poking across the ultimately not very huge Taiwan Straits, they're causing trouble and seeing what it's like and gathering intelligence and causing a little mayhem. And so if you add it all up, it's fairly extensive, I guess, is what I would say in a, in a phrase. None of it, though, is effective. None of it, obviously, nothing overthrows the government. And that is the ultimate aim behind it. But I think it's, it may have served certain purposes not that ultimate goal, but other purposes. For example, with the Manchuria operations, there's a logic behind them that's more like a military logic. Any problems we can create for Mao and the Chinese in the area where they are funneling all the support, the logistics into their operation in North Korea, that's going to help. And we've constrained ourselves politically. We're saying that it's out of bounds, but Covertly, if we can do it, that's good for our war effort. So I don't think there's really evidence that this was actually effective, but maybe it got closer toward that end because Mao knew about these operations. Mao knew personally about this particular operation and had to pay attention to it. So that's eating up some of the bandwidth. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. 
You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How does Hong Kong feature into all of this? A lot of our listeners will be in the UK and may be interested to hear that side of the story. Hong Kong gets its own chapter in the book, so UK readers can skip straight to that if they're curious. Well, Hong Kong's position is tenuous, and that is driving a lot of the UK's very tricky China policy. And there's an interesting split between Britain and the United States on this because largely because of Hong Kong and some other holdover from the great days of the empire concerns, Great Britain really wants to actually offers normal, quite early normalization of relations with the PRC and let, lets the Taiwan thing go its merry way quickly and wants to work out a deal. And actually it's Beijing that holds back and says, oh, we're not sure, we're gonna have to see about recognizing you. So that creates, first of all, a split. I mean, you could say a gulf between London and Washington in terms of China policy. And then the thing about Hong Kong, Hong Kong is just fascinating to research in this period and you have to end up there if you're doing intelligence history because everyone is spying on everyone in Hong Kong. But you've got the communists, the nationalists, the British, the Americans, and Lord knows who else. Just some stray Germans are probably popping up. So it's just a, a kind of wild place. And it's particularly important, something you know, that I should have mentioned is quite important for this project, this operation that Downey's in, because he's actually looking for, the project is looking for neither communists, you know, who would be in the mainland, nor nationalists 
who followed Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan. But this, this wonderful group called the Third Force. The Third Force are Chinese who hate the communists, but they also hate Chiang Kai-shek. They consider him a fascist. And so they end up in Hong Kong. They gravitate toward Hong Kong. So the recruiting for this operation that ultimately ends in Manchuria actually starts in Hong Kong. And I dug as much as I could into some of the details on that, how that whole process worked. And that's where also, historically speaking, in terms of the sources, it was a lot of fun because the British sources are the best. They've got the police watching all this stuff. And then it's also funny as the story continues, the British Foreign Office sources were incredibly valuable because they represent the Americans in Beijing. And so, they, but they're quite skeptical appropriately of what the Americans are telling them. So there are funny little moments in the sources where the British diplomats are saying, I'm not sure we should believe the Americans on this one. This stretches credulity, though. So. I'm sure that has never been said since. Yes, not today. Complete <laughs> trust. How does Downey ultimately get out and how has the world changed by that point? Well, it takes him quite a while to get out. It takes, it's incredible. It's, it's over 20 years. And so to fast forward through that, what it allowed me to do in the book is cover quite a bit of ground and it does thin out. There's a much thicker description of this moment of 52, but it was a lot of fun and part of the purpose of the book. I wanted to tell the story as it extends almost through U.S. administrations and how they handled China. But to fast forward through all that, it takes all the way until the big breakthrough, the secret agent, Henry Kissinger, and his secret talks with Zhou Enlai, the premier, Mao's number two, that then tees up the famous Nixon visit in February of 1972, where now this breakthrough in, in US-China relations goes public. That moment triggers the release of the other guy, Dick Fecto. But interestingly, the Chinese hold on to poor John T. Downey, even through the Nixon visit. These are one of these moments where as a historian, you try to transport yourself back there and picture it. And here is Downey in his prison cell in Beijing. And his president is in the capital, getting tours of the Forbidden City and can't bring him home, can't get him out. They kept Downey uh, until March of 1973. And then when he does get out, American domestic politics is gripped by its own crisis. I'm trying not to <laughs> not to stamp all over your Spoilers. narrative here and let you tell it. But is there a lesson from this in how it feels almost like the book starts and ends with the United States consumed by its own perspective and its own politics? Yes, that's right. The book ended up much more than I planned when I started to be as much about, or maybe even more, about the United States than about China. And those bookends that you refer to, Katie, are sort of McCarthyism to Watergate. There was an incredible research moment <clears throat> where I was looking at the kind of putting together all the little pieces of final denouement of Downey's release and going over press conferences and how is this put to the public? Because, of course, the United States government has been lying to its public and the world, but to its citizens for two decades about this, vociferously insisting, how dare the, you know, these heathen Chinese claim that these are CIA agents. And this really enraged, you know, a Joe and Lai. And so now you get this very sheepish 
admission from Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he was CIA trying to smuggle it into a press conference. But then those press conferences were fascinating because essentially this incredible news of the release, I mean, it gets reported, but it is so overshadowed. Literally at the press conference of announcing he's finally out that you can read in the transcript, these hands going up. But what about this Watergate burglary, Mr. President? Can we get more information? Because it's, you know, and Nixon himself said it, it was this press conference in March 73 when I realized I was toast and it was all Watergate now. So the way I describe this, it's actually happening in both countries. But the big theme of the book is the connection between subversion and repression and how the two have these linkages. And but yeah, they play out, I would say, as an American, disturbingly in different ways. But they're certainly playing out on the American side as they are, of course, playing out on the Chinese side. I have so many more questions on my list. Unfortunately, we're running really short on time. So let me ask you the most important one and the most unfair one, which is to distill, having worked on this book for, I think, seven years and delve back through this extraordinary history. What are the lessons from this in terms of how we approach US-China relations now? And what are, I guess, the key mistakes that we could perhaps avoid making in the current situation? I think that the biggest lesson, the one that, that I try to be subtle in the book, but certainly from, and I want readers to draw their own lessons. You know, historians always aspire to that. And I would very much hope that different readers can find different things. So I would say my lesson as a reader of my own book is the critical, essential importance of this now castaway notion of engagement, of, of, of being in contact, of having a basic foundation of contact where you can understand one another. If you start with the Korean War, but then go on, there's such profound misunderstanding between China and the United States at a governmental level and then at a public level. Because in this period that we're talking about, that the book focuses on from 1950 until 1973, there's virtually no Americans going to China. There's essentially a group of imprisoned Americans or the, hang, the Jesuit fathers who refused to leave who are under house arrest, whittling down to none to no Americans. And that means Americans just don't understand China whatsoever. But it's the same problem on the Chinese side. So I think that for me is a lesson and it's not necessarily a welcome lesson because again, as you know better, you know, anyone in Washington, it now it's about decoupling and deleveraging and competition and all these things. But I think the lesson of that period of US-China relations is just how dangerous for both sides and now it'd be for the world. It is if, if the two give up on understanding one another and you can't understand if you don't meet, if you don't talk if you don't engage. So to me, that's the moral for today. Well, I think that's a perfect moral, the perfect place to, to wrap this up. John Delury, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again on the book. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed reading it. And I, yeah, I had not previously heard of John T. Downey, shame on me, but it's a terrific service to history that you've covered in the book. Thank you. It was a lot of fun, Katie. I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been The World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. 
And if you want to hear more on this, or I should say more on Chinese politics, you can listen to our special three-part podcast series, China Under Xi, which is available right here in the World Review podcast feed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and please consider leaving us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.